0: Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE 30 So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE 30 Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. This is the first episode in the series Partisans Irish Stories from the Spanish Civil War, created by myself, Finn DeWire and Stuart Redden. Over the next 10 episodes, this series would unearth the fascinating if somewhat forgotten figures from Irish history. These include communists, republicans, catholics, fascists and spies, all of whom shared one thing in common. For one reason or another, they travelled to Spain in the late 1930s to fight in the Spanish Civil War. Between 1936 and 1939, Spain was torn apart by a highly unusual civil war. While the battles were fought on Basque, Catalan and Spanish soil, they had far-reaching consequences. Pretty much every other country in Europe, and indeed many further afield, were affected in some way, shape or form by this conflict. Ireland was no different and around 1,000 Irish people would take part in the Spanish Civil War. They served as soldiers, journalists, nurses, propagandists, And indeed some were even refugees fleeing the horrors war inflicted on them. In Spain Irish people would rub shoulders with some of the most famous and indeed notorious figures of the 20th century. Veterans of the Spanish Civil War would go on to play pivotal roles in the Second World War while literary figures such as George Orwell and Ernest Hemingway were also drawn to the conflict. The Irish partisans we are going to meet would fight bleed and in some cases die on the same battlefields as these people. While the focus of the series is on the experiences of Irish people, today's show focuses on Spain, explaining the backdrop and context to the Civil War. To truly understand its significance though, we need to begin in the Second World War, at what is often considered to be the greatest battle in world history and work our way back. By the end of the episode, we will start to weave in Irish stories. This series is funded by listeners of the podcast Just Like You. The original research, which utilises numerous archives and includes never-before-published material, involves considerable costs. The Irish History Podcast is completely independent and not supported by any institution or grant. It's based on people, as I say, like you, who have chosen to support this work at patreon.com forward slash Irish Podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash irish podcast. Listeners who become patrons get early access to the show. Exclusive discussions between me and Stuart about each episode, including material we edited out. You'll also get access to fully referenced episode guides. Now this is all available, as I say, at patreon.com forward slash irish podcast. You can also support the show by checking out the new shop at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop at the moment of a really lovely collection of metal and enamel pins of Irish historical figures there. These badges start with Brian Baru and include Gráinne Whale, the famous 16th century pirate, all the way through to Countess Markovitch, the Irish revolutionary. You can get yours today at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Now, let's begin. When the filthy, emaciated soldiers finally reached the vast expanses of the river, they boarded boats and crossed to the far bank. To reach this river and its icy waters had been their ultimate objective in the months of bitter fighting that had finally come to an end. Silence had fallen over the ruins of the city that had once been home to hundreds of thousands of people. All that remained after the battle was the occasional, lonely silhouette of what had once been a building. Eerie, ghostly reminders of the once thriving city. It was now nothing more than a graveyard which entombed the countless numbers who had been killed. For these soldiers moving towards the river in their tens of thousands, it was an emotional moment. So many of their comrades had been killed. However, even though they had survived, their future had never been more uncertain. While they had finally reached their objective, they were not a victorious army marching forwards. These bedraggled men were what remained of the German 6th Army, who were being shipped across the River Volga to begin what would be for the few who survived it a decade in captivity in Russian gulags. The city they left behind was the ruins of Stalingrad, a place of terrible memories, but also where the most important battle of the Second World War had taken place. It was February 1943 and in the previous five months of fighting, individual life had lost all value. The Russian defenders were caught between the hammer of 300,000 German soldiers pouring into the city and the anvil of the river Volga behind them. This had forced them into a bloody defence of the city. The Germans had already advanced deep into Russia and many feared that a defeat at Stalingrad would be a fatal blow to the Soviet army. In the early days of the battle a Nazi victory had seemed imminent. However, even though their advance units had managed to punch through Soviet lines in places reaching the banks of the Volga, the defenders somehow had managed to hang on and the advance slowed to a halt. No matter how much the Germans had pressed forward or pounded Stalingrad from the air, they could not dislodge the Russian defenders. Ultimately, it was the supreme confidence of the German army that was their undoing. Neither they nor the Russian defenders were aware of major developments taking place to the north and south of the city. Fearing they would be captured and reveal the details, the Russian high command had not even told their own soldiers inside Stalingrad they were about to launch an audacious bid to end the battle. In November, two Russian armies, one to the north and another to the south, smashed through the German flanks encircling the entire city and a large tract of hinterland, catching the Germans unaware. This move caught hundreds of thousands of German soldiers in a massive encirclement that would become known as the cauldron. For the world at large watching on they had never seen such theatre nor one that would come with such a price in blood. The casualties were difficult to fathom running into the hundreds of thousands. Having encircled the Germans the Russian army slowly wore them down inside the so-called cauldron and on January the 31st 1943 the German field marshal Frederick von Paulus, surrendered what remained of his army in the ruins of the city. While the battle had been fought over what was essentially a few miles of territory along the west bank of the river Volga, it had far-reaching consequences that resonated around the world. As footage of columns of German soldiers marching through snowy desolation into captivity were shown in cinemas across the globe, one didn't need to be a military strategist to know what this meant. Operation Barbarossa the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union was going to end in defeat but also the Nazis were going to lose the entire Second World War. The days of Hitler's Third Reich were numbered. The Battle of Stalingrad would become known as the greatest battle in history. At the time and ever since people have struggled to comprehend the strange mix of heroism and bravery on the one hand and the barbarism and brutality on the other that defined the struggle along the banks of the Volga. Not only had an entire city been more or less destroyed, but in the final count the total number of casualties lay somewhere between 1 and 2 million people killed or injured. Understanding how the world had reached such a point where human life had no value whatsoever is difficult. It's only when we look at the wider context of the time that we can start to see how such a situation could develop. There's no question the brutal Nazi ideology, which preached Russians were subhuman, fueled the horrific nature of the war. However, Stalingrad had also been shaped by a series of key events in European history over the previous decade. The road to Stalingrad did not start when the Germans poured across the Russian frontier in 1941, launching Operation Barbarossa. Nor was it in 1939, when Poland was ruthlessly carved up between Stalin and Hitler, Triggering the Second World War. We can trace it back to at least 1936 and events on the far side of the continent. It was the Spanish Civil War that set a brutal tone that has echoed through the 20th century, shaping Stalingrad and indeed countless other battles. Events in Spain in the late 1930s were defined by remarkable bravery, hope and idealism, but at the same time brutality and hardship. The words of the Russian journalist Vasily Grossman when describing the Second World War as a pitiless time, a time of iron, are also apt to describe what took place in Spain in the late 1930s. The Spanish Civil War not only established the parameters of the wider world war looming on the horizon, but on the blood-drenched battlefields of Spain, some of the key protagonists who fought in conflicts across Europe all the way to Stalingrad faced off for the first time against each other. No one knew it at the time but the events we are about to describe in Spain foreshadowed the dark path Europe would travel down in the Second World War. Indeed our story begins in the early 1930s at the start of the crisis that led to the Spanish Civil War but this was a time of hope and optimism for many in Spain. You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy, and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. To get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash History today to get 10% off your first month. That's better H-E-L-P dot com slash Irish History. The immediate road to civil war in Spain began when the tectonic plates of Spanish society and politics began to shift in the early 1930s. The country had been ruled by a dictator, Manuel Primo de Rivera, through most of the 1920s, but when he fell from power this precipitated major change. By 1931 the monarchy in Spain had also been deposed and a new republic declared. This seemed to usher in what appeared to many to be a new liberal epoch. The Catholic Church, the core of the conservative establishment, lost its special status. All state subsidies to the church were brought to an end and the Jesuit order was banned. The changes went even further however the first government of the republic, left-wing in outlook, introduced other major reforms. Women were given the vote for the first time while workers received increased rights and the region of Catalonia was granted increased autonomy. However, from the outset this new republic was doomed. The measures outlined above alarmed what might be called traditional Spain. The Spanish army, right-wing politicians, the Catholic Church, big business and landlords Felt their dominance was under threat, and they immediately began to plot the downfall of the Republic. Indeed, within a year, an army general, Jose San Jorjo, attempted a coup d'etat in 1932. While the coup failed and San Jorge was imprisoned, this was an early and clear indication that Spanish conservatives had no issue in using any tactic to bring an end to a republic they despised. However, opposition to the republic not only came from conservatives, Spain's working class was among the most radical in Europe. The largest trade union in the country, the National Confederation of Workers, known by its initials in Spanish as CNT, was also utterly hostile to the new government for very different reasons. With several hundred thousand members and growing rapidly, this trade union was the largest anarchist organisation in the world. Its members not only wanted a socialist revolution but also identified the state itself as being a tool of oppression which would be swept away in their revolution. In a society where employers had hired pistoleros or gunmen to kill union leaders, the uncompromising politics of the CNT were appealing to the working class. The fragile Spanish Republic grew increasingly unstable and brittle as the 1930s wore on. A right-wing government which took power in elections in 1933 only served to inflame tensions further when they reversed the reforms that had benefited the poor. A left-wing uprising against this government the following year was ferociously suppressed with a massacre of 1,000 workers and this event was in many eyes a point of no return. An irreconcilable gulf was emerging in Spanish society, one that was embodied in attitudes towards one man in particular, General Francisco Franco, the man who had suppressed the uprising of 1934, slaughtering the workers in the process. The left called Franco a butcher while the right hailed him as the saviour of the republic, a somewhat ironic title for a man who would in time lead a coup against that very republic. Increasingly, Spanish society was split into two belligerent camps. The Irish priest Alexander McCabe, the rector in the Irish college in Salamanca, had noted the subtle differences that could be seen in society. Writing in his diary he claimed in the 1920s the rich and poor had tolerated each other. But in 1933 he said, Since the fall of the monarchy and the coming of the republic, the social spirit has changed. Rich and poor tend to keep apart, to be naturally hostile. Sporadic violence and political tensions continued to grow through 1935 and when elections were called for February 1936, it was increasingly clear the republic was on borrowed time, although no one had any idea what lay ahead. Both right and left-wing leaders proclaimed they would not accept defeat in these elections. Ultimately, Spanish democracy entered its final deadly phase when a coalition of left-wing parties known as the Popular Front won the election by the narrowest of margins. Out of a total of 9.5 million votes, only 80,000 ballots separated the popular front from their rivals on the right. However, due to the particulars of Spain's electoral system, they were able to form an overall majority. This new Spanish government, however, was clearly going to struggle. They were caught between the conservative opposition, who wanted absolutely no change, and the working class, who wanted a total transformation of society. The two major trade unions, the anarchist CNT and the socialist UGT, with a combined membership which now exceeded 3 million workers, were pushing hard for a revolution. Indeed, through the early months of 1936 it seemed this had already begun, as tens of thousands of peasants began to occupy farms, violent strikes were increasingly common in the cities and churches, a symbol of the elite of Spanish society, were being attacked. Meanwhile, the Conservatives were beginning to coalesce around the idea of a fascist dictatorship. Generals had begun to sound out support within the army as well as right-wing political parties, most notably the Falange, a fascist movement. Caught between these two forces, a revolutionary working class on the one hand and the far-right on the other, the government struggled to maintain control. Violence and assassinations became increasingly common. Indeed, right-wing politicians would ultimately claim there had been 345 political murders in the first five months after the elections of 1936. While this figure is disputed, there is no doubt Spain was sliding towards a revolution or a fascist coup. The situation was increasingly unsustainable, but the stakes could not have been higher for either side. The left knew many of them would face death squads in the event of a dictatorship. Indeed, after the war started, a spokesman for the fascists, Captain Gonzalo de Aguilera actually told one journalist their mission was, and I quote, to kill, to kill and to kill, to exterminate one third of the masculine population and cleanse the country of the proletariat. Meanwhile, the socialist leader, Largo Caballero seemed to confirm the worst fears of conservatives about what a revolution would bring. He proclaimed, I want a republic without class war, but for that to happen, one class needs to disappear. The fact that this man, Caballero was being lauded as the Spanish Lenin after the deceased Russian dictator only further cemented hardening attitudes among the right. While they naturally disliked the idea of socialism which promised to nationalise land and large-scale industry, any mention of the Russian Revolution struck a deep nerve in the conservative psyche. During that revolution, tens of thousands of opponents of the revolutionaries had been massacred in what was known as the Red Terror. As Caballeros seemed to promise this was what lay ahead. Many in the middle and upper classes began to gravitate towards the authoritarian right and fascism. By the high summer of 1936 it was obvious the Republic would last weeks or months at most. The levels of violence were approaching those experienced in Ireland during the War of Independence. But this paled in comparison to what was about to be unleashed when the forces of the right finally attempted their coup d'etat in mid-July. The unbearable tension building in Spanish society exploded on July the 17th and the days following when units of the Spanish army marched out of their barracks and began to seize power in towns and cities across Spain. They were acting under orders of generals who had been planning this move for months in conjunction with conservative and fascist politicians. They planned to overthrow the government in Madrid using the justification always employed by plotters in such situations that they were acting in the national interest to preserve law and order. However, it was long obvious there was no such thing as the Spanish national interest. While the Catalans and the Basques wanted to determine their own fates, the working class and the ruling class had two very different visions of what the country should be. Despite their months of planning, and the advantage of taking coordinated action in several places at once, the plotters in the army had vastly underestimated their opponents. While the Popular Front government was paralysed, the Spanish working class, long preparing for a revolution, immediately fought back. The trade unions, the anarchist CNT and socialist UGT, knew their membership would pay a price in blood if the coup succeeded. In cities and towns across Spain, These unions along with left-wing political parties began to arm their members. In Barcelona for example the CNT with around 800,000 members in the city raided arms ships in the harbour and attacked barracks to procure weapons. The coup was defeated in nearly all major industrial cities notably Barcelona, Bilbao, Malaga and most importantly the capital of Madrid. However the army did manage to take around one third of the country and by early August Spain was divided. The coup had not been successful, but a civil war was inevitable. There was no way back and to make matters worse, the events of the summer of 1936 had unleashed dark forces in Spanish society. Decades of pent-up tension exploded. In anti-fascist areas, vengeance was swift against enemies perceived and real and thousands were killed. Churches, the symbols of inequality, were burned. In a small number of cases, priests were executed. However, this was not a repeat of the red terror in Russia that many feared. By and large, the leadership of the CNT, the UGT and left-wing political parties were opposed to this violence and they regained control in a matter of weeks. It was in the fascist-controlled areas that things were different. A wholesale slaughter of trade unionists, socialists and anarchists got underway. This would last years and it was this that was comparable to the scale of the Red Terror in Russia. Within weeks it was already approaching levels of violence against the civilian population unseen in Western Europe since the French Revolution. While this spelled a grave future for Spain, the situation was about to get even worse. A civil war in Spain that grew out of deep ideological tensions guaranteed it would never be solely a Spanish affair. Indeed, by November 1936 it had already become more of an international war fought on Spanish soil than a traditional civil war as we shall see next. For other countries in Europe the outbreak of the war in Spain was deeply alarming. It could have huge consequences. A Spanish government for example could take control of the Straits of Gibraltar, a critical sea lane that was the gateway to the Mediterranean Sea and the Suez Canal. However, equally if not more important was the fact that the war unfolding in Spain had strange and unique qualities. The multifaceted conflict that pitted fascist against anti-fascist, the rich against the poor, socialist against capitalists and the regional rights of the Catalans and the Basques against those of a central government seemed to mirror local circumstances in many countries across the world. Many people on both the right and the left could identify with one side of the struggle or the other, believing it reflected their own personal struggles at home. In this context the Spanish Civil War would quickly become internationalised. Indeed from the earliest days Nazi Germany and fascist Italy were supporting the Spanish generals. Then, although initially hesitant, Stalin, the dictator of the communist Soviet Union, began to send aid to the anti-fascist side in the autumn of 1936 as did the socialist government in Mexico. They were soon followed by legions of ordinary people drawn to the conflict for their own reason. By 1937, thousands of volunteers began pouring into Spain to fight in this war. Among them were around 1,000 Irish people. Many of them would be shocked by the reality of what lay ahead of them in Spain. Even for veterans of the Irish War of Independence, the Spanish Civil War was far removed from their experiences of political violence. Within months it had developed a ruthless characteristic that unnerved many. This was seen when the fascists began to besiege Madrid in the late autumn of 1936. Fueled by a paranoia about a fascist uprising in the city, the communist Santiago Carrillo, along with the anarchist Amor Nuno, oversaw the execution of 2,000 prisoners in the city in November. Meanwhile the fascists were killing people in the thousands behind their lines. Nevertheless, the risk involved did not deter Irish volunteers and some of them were among the first to arrive. Indeed, in December 1936, the first native English speaker to die in the Spanish Civil War was killed at the Battle of Madrid. This was Thomas Patton, a Republican socialist and a native of Ackle Island and County Mayo who had come to fight on the anti-fascist side. Patton was just among the first of the thousands of international volunteers who would die in the Spanish Civil War. This would be their Stalingrad. Indeed, the war that lay ahead of them would have a direct impact on that battle seven years later on the Volga River in Russia. One small example was the carpet bombing of Stalingrad in the opening phase of that battle which killed 40,000 people. This could be traced directly back to the Spanish Civil War. The bombing of Stalingrad was overseen by General Wolfram von Richthofen, who had commanded the Nazi Condor Legion in Spain. It was during the Spanish Civil War he had developed this tactic of carpet bombing, most notably in the horror he had rained down on the town of Guernica in the Basque country. The conflict that unfolded in Spain foreshadowed the brutal nature of warfare that would have devastating consequences in the Second World War, particularly on the Eastern Front. A few weeks after the start of the Spanish Civil War, the anarchist Buenaventura de Ruti, who played a pivot role in the opening phase of the war, Explain the uncompromising nature of the battle that lay ahead for Irish people who travelled to Spain when he said, There are only two roads, victory for the working class and freedom, or victory for the fascists, which means tyranny. Both combatants know what's in store for the loser. We are ready to end fascism once and for all. However, the Spanish Civil War was also a time of great idealism. The promise that Madrid would become the graveyard of fascism inspired many around the world even for the supporters of fascism, it was also an idealistic conflict. They had framed their coup as a crusade, something that appealed to the Irish Catholics in particular, not least among them the first partisan of the series. Next week we will meet the Irish-American Catholic activist Aileen O'Brien. Her story will take us across several countries, through the shadowy world of far-right activism, to Ireland in 1935 where Aileen's experiences reveal why many Irish people identified with the cause of the Spanish generals and the far-right. That episode is based on never-before-seen files gathered by Irish military intelligence on Aileen and her family, so it'll make for interesting listening. Finally, don't forget to check out the badges available at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Until then, Sloan.